Hello, everybody. Welcome to 321 No Kidding. Bobby the Awesome here. And today I am joined by a very special guest that I have had the honor of sharing a stage with before. Um, the the girl gambler podcast power, I guess we can say. Um, welcome to the show, Christina. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's great to do this with you. Yeah, this is going to be fun. I didn't get a chance to um, get to know you well enough. You know, there's five of us and um, it's just inspiring to see you out there. Um, you've built kind of your own tribe with the Broke Girl Society, which it, one of my big takeaways that day was um, the irony of the name, you know, the Broke the broke Girl Society is just a beautiful play on words for, for what we're involved in. So um, how about we start off with just like a regular introduction, kick us off and, and please let my audience, hopefully they're bouncing around between all of us anyway, and, and getting the different perspectives. But for those who might not know who you are, can you, can you kick us off that way? Sure. Um, I'm Christina and I, let's see, I've been in recovery from gambling now for a little over two years uh, since March of, I placed my last bet in March of 2021. And that kind of started my journey of, you know, figuring out what, what this thing is that I had and trying to, to understand gambling addiction and trying to understand how I can best heal and move forward and, and all that stuff. So that was kind of the journey of it. And I'll just kind of jump in where you talked about the play of words for the broke girl society. And I say, when I placed my last bet in March, I was absolutely broken in every sense of the word. And that's where the name came, came from for me. Um, I was broke, not only financially, um, I was broke mentally, spiritually, emotionally, just every which way. And so for me, it was just that word just kept coming up a lot when I was talking to my therapist and I was trying to just express how I was feeling. And, uh, so that's kind of where that, that name came, came into play for me, but, uh, kind of a, a cliff notes version of my story and you can pull more details out with your questions. But, uh, I started gambling right after, um, a divorce, my first divorce. And, I was kind of at an age where all my friends were getting married and having babies. And here I was, found myself 28, divorced, um, no babies. And I just was feeling kind of out of place. And like, I wasn't really connecting with people in my life. And so I was looking for something to do. And I wasn't somebody that was going to go to the bars. And I'm in Oklahoma. And they had just opened up uh, gambling here in the state. We'd had bingo halls prior, but they had just started building casinos. And so they had built a new one up up from where I lived, um, maybe five minutes from where I lived and it had been open a couple of years. And I thought, well, I had fun the few times that I'd been and, um, it seemed like a safe place, well lit. Um, and just seemed like a place I could go on a Friday, Saturday night, you know, spend a little time and go home. And, you know, that's what it was for, for quite some time until it, it was more than that. And I didn't realize in that time, how I was using it as a coping mechanism for all these things I was going through. And, um, so over those years I started to build and, and use that as a coping mechanism. And, you know, the rest of the story, it just continues to get worse. And, uh, then that's when I found myself at recovery door. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I've driven, <laughs> 
I've driven through Oklahoma and going by the billboards on this one road coming out of Dallas, it was like every 10 feet, there was an Oklahoma billboard for a mm -hmm. casino. Um, and I, I want to dig deeper into a couple things I already wrote down. I'm so intrigued, but um, knowing that it's a coping mechanism, but they make it so easy and so blatant. It's just so frustrating. Um, and because of that, like, well, I guess let me ask you this. Let me start here. Um, you said that you were broken uh, spiritually, financially, all of those things. Like, what was your what was your like aha moment that you were broken? Like, cause we're in a fog. We don't really know that we're as broken as we are. I, I don't know about you, but a lot of my stuff is like, Oh, reflecting back. I, I was in a lot of trouble. Um, so how did you know, like what inspired you um, to start recovery? And then what did it look like? What were your initial um, recovery strategies? Yeah, for me, and you hear a lot of people say, I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? That's like the, the most common thing I hear that a lot of us gamblers can relate to. You're just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And when we say that, we're talking about the cycle and the rat race and the, you know, chasing and, and trying to fix what we've what we've lost and, and, you know, just that whole cycle of it. And it just, I had gambled for 15 years at this point. So I started at 28. I took my last bet at 42. So, um, there's quite a few years there that, that I gambled and I, to say I was sick and tired. I mean, you could see it in my face. You could see it just, I'd gained so much weight and I wasn't taking care of myself. So physically you could see it but mentally, I started having these really, really dark thoughts, and they're not things that I had struggled with previously, and I was just so, so unhappy in every aspect of my life. I didn't understand why I was compelled to gamble, even though I would be sitting in the casino here towards the end, and I would be like, why am I even here? Or I'd even have moments of like, how did I even get here? Like, I don't even remember driving to the casino, and, you know, so just having, but but also at the same time, I couldn't leave until every penny I could get my hands on was gone. I couldn't leave. It's like, I didn't want to be there, but I couldn't leave either. And it was just like, I had one of those, those moments, I think at the end of December of 21. And I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to stop. I'm just going to stop. I'd never experienced addiction in any form. I didn't, I didn't grow up with people dealing with addiction. So addiction to me was a foreign thing. Like I had no understanding of it. And so I wasn't associating it. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I thought I was the only person in the world who couldn't control what she was doing. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to stop. I'm just going to stop. And so come January, I stopped. I stopped all through January. I stopped all through um, February. And then I started back up. I think it was, it was like the end of February. And for a week, I just like completely lost control. Everything I had in my account, I used. And so it was like a binge for a week, you know, like this week long binge of like losing, chasing, losing, chasing. I went through my paycheck. I went through my husband at the time's paycheck. And it was just like, that was just, I just can't even begin to tell you how utterly broken I felt. Like, what is wrong with me? Why can't, why can't I just stop? Why, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I doing this to the people I loved? I mean, I had borrowed from my family. I had done some really, really shitty financial things to my family. And I just felt like I was never going to be able to fix this 
some of that stuff. And I was never going to, um, my family was never going to like really trust me again. They didn't even know who I was, you know, and all these things, a lot of us can, can relate to. And so I started having feelings of like, maybe I'm just better off if I'm not here. I wouldn't be burdening my family. I wouldn't be causing this pain to, to people I love. And then it was, so I was, I, it was the very last night and then I placed that bet and I walked out to my car and I had like tons of missed calls. Cause you know, I went MIA trying to do this and, um, I just got thinking, you know, I was thinking, planning it out. Like, how would I do this? What would I do? And I picked up my phone, uh, to look at it and a picture of my mom and my sisters popped up on my phone. And I thought, I can't do this to them. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, I don't want to hurt them anymore. I don't want to put them through whatever's going on with me. But at the same time, I'm, I'm talking about putting them through the worst thing I could ever do to them. And, you know, and this isn't about guilt shaming or any of that. It's just like me trying to put into perspective what I was really thinking and feeling. And it was in that moment that I decided I don't want to hurt myself. I want to kill this addiction. And it was kind of like me realizing that in that moment that just kind of flipped the switch in me. And I was like, I'm going to save myself. I'm going to try and figure this out. And I'm going to ask for help. I'm going to wholeheartedly ask for help and mean it. And the next morning I went to my mom and we had a conversation. I laid it out. She had thought I'd stopped gambling and I hadn't. I'd been lying, of course. And she, you know, she had a friend that had gone to GA in the past. And so she kind of was a little bit familiar with it. And that kind of started me on my journey of like exploring Gamblers Anonymous um, and looking into finding a therapist and just kind of really down, down the, the rabbit hole of like, how do I advocate for myself? How do I do this? And that's, that's kind of where my journey is, but there's kind of this little catch in there that I kind of skipped because I don't really remember exactly when I connected, but in that time that I stopped gambling in that little 60 day window of abstinence that I had, I was watching a show late at night and it was my 600 pound life. And I am obsessed with the show to this day. And I was watching the person in this episode talking about her food addiction. She was talking about the anticipation she felt before she ate the, how she felt like the euphoria of eating and how good that made her feel. And then afterwards, like how awful and the self-loathing, the self-hate came in. And I connected with that so much in that moment, because that's exactly how I felt with gambling. I was excited to get there. I was, you know, all high and happy when I was there. And then when it's left with nothing, I was broken, you know, all that stuff. And that's how I kind of connected it with an addiction. And it sounds crazy, but that's, so that's when I kind of, I think that moment helped me realize that I needed more. And so, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You, you answered some of my questions um, as far as like background, like I grew up around addiction and had a different lens on it. Like I had alcoholic parents. Right. And, and I'd have to go to Alateen. It was called as a kid. And I resented 12 step and the help thing. Cause I wasn't the one with the problem. So I went in very jaded to, to GA. It took a really long time. Um, so it's interesting to me to people who don't grow up around it and then still find it. Um, and I don't know that I knew 
um, two years in either that I was using it to cope me to, to cope even through two years of GA, the first time I quit, I don't know that I ever had that realization. So congratulations to you for being able to like have that perspective about it. I'm a little curious about the timing though. You, you survived COVID without gambling? Like what did you, did you switch from casino to online or like, what did that look like? And then you mentioned a second husband somewhere in like during your gambling career. So do you mind touching on those two points? Sure. Um, okay. So during COVID, the casinos here were only shut down for maybe, and I kind of don't really mention it because it, it, for me, it doesn't really play a part in my abstinence because it was, it was forced, it was forced abstinence. So I don't really count that as a time that I can count as not gambling because it was a forced thing, but we were only shut down. They were only shut down maybe 30 days. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So the state of Oklahoma was really kind of, um, they didn't, you know, they weren't as harsh as a lot of other states. I mean, our economy is very heavy on like oil field and things like that. So it was like, they had to keep going, but yeah, the casinos were shut down maybe a month and give or take a few days. And I do remember during that time feeling relief, like, because that was right at, you know, right at the end of my gambling career. And, you know, that was in that period of time where I hated it. I don't know why I kept doing it. Like it was, the addiction was really, so I remember, I remember having moments of like, man, this feels really nice. But then I also had those moments of like really jonesing and itching to get back into the casino. So, and I think I even held off maybe another two weeks after they opened because I was scared of COVID. I'm somebody with, I have type two diabetes and some autoimmune. So it was just like, I was a little bit fearful of that, but man, two weeks and it was like, that was it. I risk my own health to get back to gambling. And it felt like it was actually maybe worse after that. Um, But yeah, so my relationship situation is a little bit weird. So I divorced my first husband and I got married really young. I divorced my first husband at 28. And, um, then I got right into a relationship with a very, um, abusive person. And I was in that relationship when I started to gamble, um, like heavily when it started, like pretty much the whole time I gambled, I was in this relationship and it was a very, um, mentally and emotionally abusive relationship. And it really, really played a number. I'm still in therapy for a lot of that damage. And then that, that relationship ended or ended after a certain amount of time. I can't remember. And then I met and married my, um, next husband and, um, he was a person in an addiction and I didn't know it. I didn't know the signs of it because I was heavily addicted at that time to my gambling. So, um, it started at the end of one relationship and like worked, I worked doing my gambling through two relationships. Um, it's kind of confusing, but, um, and a lot of the emotional damage. And that's why I talk about coping because that's actually something that my therapist helped me understand. Um, is like, that was a coping to deal with the emotional abuse that I was going through because I, I was so mad at myself that I couldn't stand up for myself. You Mm. know, I couldn't stand up. I couldn't defend myself to this person because I am a people pleaser to the core. I am somebody that is non-confrontational. Like I am, I, I was prime for somebody who's narcissistic and 
and that way. And um, so a lot of, a lot of that angst and, and stuff that I was dealing with was, I just, I didn't know how to deal with it any other way. And so I, you know, that's where my gambling really, really took off. Well, it would make sense if you're, if you're in this bad situation, you'd be escaping to the casino. I mean, I know I did that for a lot of, (laughs) a lot of things at a lot of times. So I completely get that. Um, I'm okay. I'm, I'm all over the place because I'm just so intrigued, but you, I guess time doesn't really matter, right? Because we're all on our own journeys. So I get that part, but I'm still quite in awe um, that, you know, two plus years, you're already like an established podcaster and voice for recovery, um, raising awareness around gambling addiction. How did that come about? Do you mind sharing that? I think a lot of that came about was just, you know, my whole goal was to get back to uh, some authentic version of myself, right? Like I was so lost in gambling. I had lost myself in relationships. I, um, I guess relationships are a big catalyst for my gambling when I look back at it, but you know, so it was just trying to find me again. And I was still married when I entered recovery. And that's when I, you know, when you, when one person enters recovery and another person is, is still in addiction and they're not ready to enter recovery, that plays like this whole, like, it was really hard, you know, and having conversations with recovery and then that person not really understanding it or thinking that, oh, well, you're putting recovery over this, or you're doing, you know, setting those boundaries with people who aren't used to them, um, was, was really, really hard. And, but having to, to hold those boundaries firm. And I think I just learned so much about myself, um, working with therapists, recognizing my behaviors, trying to make amends, working a program. I found a sponsor, started working in the 12 steps, um, stayed committed to GA and some other meetings and podcasts. Podcasts were a huge thing for me in the beginning and listened to everybody's podcasts and just trying to to find my way and find some path and, and find some meaning in, in everything. And so it was like, I, I don't know what, I, I don't know what started this passion in me, but I remember early on people were like, Oh, it's pink cloud. And that made me mad. That made me so mad when people were just like, even here in the state of Oklahoma, I was trying to work with our council for problem gambling. And they were just like, no, you know, call me when you're two years in or, you know, they just weren't taking me seriously. And I was just trying to figure all this out. And, um, it just kind of started something in me. Um, and I'm trying to figure out what it was, but I honestly don't know. And I'm just glad that I didn't listen to people and that I kept going. And I thought, I enjoyed podcasts so much and I thought maybe I'll just share my own story as part of my own recovery. I never anticipated it to be what it was or what it's become. And so I started doing that and I started reaching out. I mean, I was like reaching out to people I had no business reaching out to to come on the podcast, but I was just like, I'm just going to shoot high, you know? And, um, I made a lot of great connections and, um, I just found that I really liked talking to people about their stories and I wanted these conversations out there and then, you know, so that other people could connect with them the way that I had connected with everybody else's conversations. And so it just kind of went off from there. And then I decided to start the Facebook group 
as kind of a way of creating a space, safe space for women. Um, I don't feel like I'm really encompassing everything, but um, I wanted a safe space for women that they didn't have to worry about if they had been harmed by men, that they didn't, that they had a safe space that they could share what's going on with them, talk about their emotional journey with recovery, you know, where sometimes you don't find a lot of that in male dominated spaces or even mixed um, sex spaces. You just, I just wanted a safe place for women to be able to share really what was going on with them, whether it was hormonal, whether it was their kids, whether it was their husbands, you know, I wanted a safe space that we could all talk about it. And I noticed that, you know, as more and more people were reaching out from reaching out to me through social media, that it would be a good thing to do. So I started the BGS group and I think we're almost 1300 women strong in that group. And it's just, yeah, it's been, it's been overwhelming, but really amazing. Yeah, that's beautiful. It is important. Part of where I've landed through, it's so interesting because when I started my show, it was about raising awareness around gambling addiction. Like it was just that short and sweet. And as it's evolved, I'm interviewing guests that have recovery strategies that were not anything I ever heard of or knew existed. So it's kind of blossomed into this whole other thing. And then having being an ex drinker now too, right? Like, so there's this whole crossover. So then I ended up, you know, like talking all about addiction and stuff. And what I think is changing or so I grew up on scratch offs and sneaking in the casino before I was too young, um, gambled my whole life pretty much. But this online thing, when I think about it, the whole millennial culture, right? Like, and I, I don't say that um, with judgment, but this, this whole thing, there's been all these stereotypes and all this stuff put on millennials. But if we say they won't connect and, and talk like human, human beings, right? Like we have the phones and the technology. What makes us think they're going to walk into a 12-step room and talk to a bunch of strangers and generally a bunch of old white men, like as, as a percentage thing? Um, so I'm really seeing that something has to be different. So I almost feel like that's where like things like the podcast do come in because their device is already in their hand. Like they're not going to come, they're not going to come to us anymore. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I think, I think overall, I think, you know, the, the older generations are definitely still utilize the, the Gamblers Anonymous program. And, and it, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful program to commit to. It's, it's saved thousands of lives, but it's also a program that is very dated, I think. And, um, you know, there there are some really great, I want to just stress that there are some really great GA rooms, a lot yeah. of places. There's just a lot of communities that they're, they're not as many GA rooms and a lot of them are closing down or, or because there's not enough people showing up. So yeah, when you look at that and if you keep, you know, all these different conferences and they keep saying, well, make sure you refer to them to these 12 step programs. And it's like, but wait, if you keep doing that and these 12 step programs aren't really providing the space that needs to be provided, what are you doing then? What are you doing? And so I love that the clinical community has really embraced podcasts as a way of like to help recovery, because here's the thing. I was scared to death before I walked into that first GA room. 
And I was just like, matter of fact, the door was like locked and I was just so like, my face was all flushed and I was just so embarrassed that I didn't get the right door. I was almost about to walk in my car and go home. Mm -hmm. And then fortunately, I, I would, I say fortunately, but I knew that I had to do this. And so I finally found somebody else going in a different door. Um, But I'm just saying even little things like that can sometimes really be um, something that blocks somebody from going. So where podcasts and different things have been so helpful is like they, they have recovery at their ears. You know what I mean? Like they can, they can kind of dip their feet in the the pool of recovery without really jumping in and kind of gives them an idea to first come to terms with where they're at in recovery kind of gives them an idea of, of what recovery, um, will look like, could look like. Um, and you know, it helps them connect before they're even really really embraced it. And I just think that's so important. Um, myself and Hatch are going to be doing, uh, for the national conference, we're going to be doing a panel on how podcast is podcasting is revolutionizing the recovery community because it truly is, you know, when we have conversations, like you say yourself about other, um, ways of recovery, there's, I don't believe there's a one size fits all approach. I feel like, my job or what I'm doing is just encouraging people to advocate for themselves, be curious about what could work for them and to try everything, really try everything. And if if you say this doesn't work, at least, you know, you tried it. And instead of being like, well, I heard that there's just a bunch of white men in these gambling rooms or in these GA rooms. So I'm not going to go, um, go to the room and fill it out. And yeah, do that stuff first before you just automatically assume it's not going to be a space for you. But also, you know, just explore. And you can do that through podcasts where there's so many people, you, Brian Hatch, um, Jamie, all these different podcasts out there exploring so many avenues of recovery that it's just, it's just amazing. The response of it too. Yeah. Do you have, do you have like a full-time job too? Like as, as, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm kind of as I'm like so exhausted today, I'm like, yes, I work full time outside of like, I mean, I am an accountant in my day job. And um, so it's, it, I come home and when I log in to, to do this stuff, it is, I consider it my second job that I don't get paid for. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's what it feels like sometimes. Well, that's just it. I don't think I don't, I remember the first show that I was really enthralled with and, and the podcaster in my eyes is still kind of a celebrity, you know, like it it felt so distant until you're in the world. And then to think about all the things that happen in the background, I mean, it doesn't have to be complicated, but there's still work Mm -hmm. um, involved and yeah, it's good. So thank you for what you're doing. And that's exciting about you and Hatch going to national conference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty excited about that. And I was like one of those things where, okay, so last year was the first, first time I really spoke in front of like, cause I, I was on a panel last year too. And I'm not in a world of conferences. Like I am not somebody who's gone to conferences and who does all this stuff. Like I really have had limited travel. Um, and so last year was kind of a year of like travel for me and, and kind of doing speaking engagements and things like that. And it's very much out of my comfort zone. I am introverted to the core And, you know, but when you get me talking about gambling harm, gambling recovery, and women in this space, like, 
something just like, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm on. So I decided to submit for a panel, um, asked Hatch to do it with me because we do the bet free life on YouTube and, um, we, we got picked. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really nervous about it, but I feel so much passion for what all of us are doing in this community that I really want like other clinicians to understand the value of it. And also the value of the work that we're doing, because, you know, we do spend a lot of hours doing this and a lot of our heart goes into it. And so it's kind of nice to be able to let people know that, yes, it's part of our recovery and it's part of our service work to the community. And and we do it because we're passionate, but also be nice to get some support too. So when and where is it? The national conference is in DC this year. It's in July. I think I did know that. And I think I'm traveling. Okay. Um, because I'm doing it. This is interesting too. I submitted for, um, a New York, the New York conference, which I've gone to as when I was like a client and there must've been two of us that put in for gambling awareness, which I thought was amazing. Right. Like, because the first time I went, there was no, like they actually had a raffle in the lobby. Like oh my it was in the gambling conference. It was um, all addictions, but nobody thinks of gambling as an addiction. Um, and I was really hot about it. It was kind of like what we went through too. I think they had a raffle or prizes or something yeah. so embedded into society. So the two of us applied and they, they wrote back and said, well, can you guys work together? Well, she's on, she's in New York, um, New York something problem gambling. There's five initials. Um, so how great is it to have the state kind of thing with a public person come together? Like we're really excited about doing that. And I, I really think collaboration is the way to go. And I love what you and Brian do. And I, I love, I've had him on the show and, and he's just, you know, he's amazing too, but um, Absolutely. Our voices are always going to be stronger together. Right. And I've always said that because somebody is like, well, does it get competitive in the gambling podcast? More? I'm like, well, for one, there's just not enough podcasts. Like if you look at recovery as a whole, there's like a gazillion for alcohol and drugs and, and just sobriety in general. But when you really kind of narrow it down to just gambling harm, um, there just isn't enough. And I welcome, and I see that there's a couple, a couple more women that are jumping into the space too. Um, and I'm just so grateful for that, uh, to give different perspectives, different voices, different energy, and it's all, it's all needed. And we like, the more we do this, hopefully the more awareness we spread. And I'm going to say the people from New York, like those ladies that run that council and those different um, programs throughout New York, they're freaking amazing. Like they have some of the best resources possible, I think, in New York. And those people really, um, really, really care, you know, give my shout out to like Brandy, Amy, uh, Robin, all those, all those, uh, Kelly, who's now on there, like all those people. Yeah. They are. And they're so easy to work with. And it's interesting too. They don't necessarily come from gambling uh, backgrounds or anything. So for them to show up the way they do for the community is, is pretty impressive. You don't, you don't show up that way just for a paycheck. Like, no, no. And that's what impressed me from the beginning with them. And I think a lot of people who, I think we're really lucky to be 
I mean, if I can say it that way, to be in this community and doing the work that we're doing with the people we're doing it with, because, um, you know, it takes a certain level of empathy and compassion to work in the addiction mental health field. And most of the people that I've come across have, it's been just generally great to get to know them, to be able to, to help forward their work in advocacy and, and do those things. And I've made a lot of really, really great friends in this community. And so it's, you know, it really has made it easier to do the kind of stuff that we do. Um, when you know that, that the people who are working with you, the clinicians, um, you know, others who are in the research and, you know, even, even the ones who are going, you know, walk in the Capitol Hills, trying to get funding for gambling harm. It's just like, I'm just very, very proud to be part of the gambling harm community in that way, for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. So take us back. Um, You said before we started, there's parts of your story that people don't even know. Like, and I know what you mean, because you're right. When we share, usually, you know, it depends on our audience. So like, if it's a first step meeting for someone we're talking, like, I know if it's someone younger, I talk about the part of my story about when I went into a GA room in 20 and it didn't stick. Or, you know, um, if it's a, a a woman who's been married, maybe I talk about it through the lens of a wife, right? So we don't really, we're, we're doing it out of service, generally, I think, when we share a story. So um, do you want to speak to anything that you don't generally get to talk about? Well, I think it's, you know... A lot that I haven't talked on that I probably touched on more in this this episode with you than I have in future episodes is, you know, the abuse that I experienced. And um, because it took me a long time to really recognize like what it took me lots and lots of work with a therapist and my sponsor to really understand the abuse of it. Because when there's not physical abuse, you don't really... I don't know, like I wasn't physically hurt. Right. So it's like, I, I don't feel like I can say I was somebody who suffered domestic abuse or domestic violence or anything like that. I don't connect with it um, in that way. So just thinking that somebody like used words and emotions to, to break you is it's, it's hard to, you think people won't understand that. Right. And like, they won't understand that they, they're they like, really? Um, and so it's like really kind of connecting, connecting a lot of, a lot of that with my own behaviors, you know, because when you're in that kind of situation, you sometimes take on those behaviors as a protective mechanism and kind of start being that person yourself. And so there's been just a lot of internal work of like healing and growing past that and understanding that I. I think a lot of times we'll be like, oh, well, it could have been worse or it could have happened a different way and I survived it. So I'm okay. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that, no, this person really did do this to me. And, you know, it's been five years since I completely cut all contact with him because I was working with him at the time too. So it's, it's kind of, it's a very like drawn out story, but um, you know, but if I, you know, the past five years, he still stalks me and he still mm. like, 
And it just made me realize, especially over the last few years, that here it is five years, no contact. I never respond to any of the abuse or the accusations and or anything like that. And it's five years later, he's still doing this to me. So it's like, yes, he is an abusive person. And, you know, but in his mind, he's, he's not, you know, and it just, it it was really kind of a lot of connecting with that. I don't know if I'm making any sense trying to explain this part of my story, but um, it was kind of really recognizing that, you know, he held me in fear. And, and so a lot of that was just trying to release that power that he still had over me um, through his words and his actions. I have, I have two questions. And if I overstep and we get into a territory that you're not comfortable with, feel free to tell me, like, it's not going to hurt my feelings. I really, I do want you to feel at home here. Um, What I thought I heard you say, like when you talked about it through the lens of domestic violence and, and physical verbal abuse, to me, what I thought I was hearing, and I've experienced this myself, like that comparison. It's not as bad as the next guy. So my problem isn't valid enough, or I'm not worth having that, you know, like it's comparison. And and it's that, that's what I felt when you were talking. Um, and I love that. I can also hear that, you know, that that's not the truth, um, and that you're stronger than that. And that we all suffer our pains and our pains are different and unique. So um, thank you. And thank you for sharing that. Um, and then here's the here's the rougher point slash question. So my experience has been the men I choose are reflective of even prior to when I was able to date, right? So I'm learning the things that helps make the choices that I make or not choices that I make the not better choices. Um, are you finding that on your journey? Like that it started before the dating world? Like, are you, are you, are you finding things along the way? Is my question making sense? And if it's too deep, yeah, I am definitely somebody that had daddy issues. Like my, I was raised by a single mom and like, if that's kind of where you're going with this, yes, I am definitely somebody who, you know, I was raised by a single mom and she didn't really date a lot because she had three young girls at home and she was more fearful of, of her bringing somebody into her life that would hurt us. And so, but I was also raised by somebody who was strong because she had to be, she didn't have a choice. There was no backup plan. And so she lived in survival mode. I had a sister that had mental illness and, you know, my mom was exhausted. She was working two jobs and, and I believe she was probably in a state of depression most of my, most of my childhood. So it's like, even though I felt like she did a good, the best job she could raising me, there's not like this thing I got to hash out with my mom. Um, my dad was, was absent. And when he did show up, he was not connective and, um, I remember he gave me Barbies for my 16th birthday and it was just kind of one of those type of situations. And so I think I've always kind of were, was looking for that guy that was going to, I don't know, save me, be my white knight. And, um, and you know, my first husband was a good guy. We just went through a lot and we just were young and, you know, he wasn't abusive or, or any of that. We were just too young and we went through too much. And so, I think not healing from that first divorce really carried with me and then getting right into this relationship with somebody who is 
And, and the thing is, is sometimes you don't even know. I mean, it took me years to realize the abuse, um, you know, the, the love bombing and then it turned into the gaslighting, you know, it would be like, he would say, Hey, let's make plans this weekend. Um, and then he would ghost me all weekend, but I would just sit by the phone. And especially if he knew like I had something coming up and he would be like, no, let's go do this. And so I would not go with my friends and I would wait for him. And it was all, you know, it was just those little things, those little control things. He didn't want me doing that, but he didn't necessarily want to do anything with me either. So it was just like, um, but then it was just like, I was always taking him back or always, you know, making up excuses for why he did what he did and, and those types of things. And so, you know, it was just kind of wanting love and not wanting to be abandoned. And it's like, he would show up and say the right things. And this went on for years. And then when I finally was able to, to end that relationship, um, we still kind of had a working relationship for a few, few years afterwards. And yeah, so I was like really tied in. And so the control for him really stayed into that. And then, um, so my next relationship, I went into really quick too, and he was a nice guy and it was like, oh, he's not going to be mean to me. He doesn't yell at me. He doesn't play mind games with me. He's, but I, I was overlooking his drinking. And I think for me, his drinking enabled him not to question where I was when I was gambling. And it just, he was the type of guy that handed over his paycheck. And it, so really when I'm, I'm looking at myself and how the, these things um, cause this has been a journey of healing and growth for me, even looking at the ugliest parts of me and to look at that, my last relationship and see that I chose him for specific reasons, right? I chose him because he wasn't really questioning what I was doing. He was going to hand over his paycheck. He wasn't mean to me, you know, but I wasn't looking at like how much his drinking, how much he was drinking. And, you know, it didn't bother me when I was in my own addiction. It was when I hit recovery and started to understand addiction and then that's when the issues really started to happen. Even though there were issues all along, I just wasn't looking at him that way. And so, yeah, it, and, you know, it was my own recovery, my own healing, my own growth that led me to, to know that I needed to end that relationship. Yeah. And, and a lot of that, it took me, it took me a long time. I stayed in it for a long time knowing that it wasn't right for me, knowing that it was hurting me more to stay because I didn't want to hurt him. And I didn't want to, like, I felt so guilty because I entered this relationship with my own addiction. And now that I'm working on it, like, I don't know, I just had all these emotions. But then at the end of the day, it was like, if I wanted to maintain my recovery and I wanted to continue to, to heal and grow, I knew I had to leave. And it was making that decision um, that really made me know that I was finally, finally healing because I, I put my, what I needed to do first. I'll tell you, there's a theme in your story about overcoming and showing up for yourself and making the hard choices. And, and I'm just really proud of you. I need to say that because it's, it's beautiful. Um, Thank you. and I, you know, if, if I was someone in the car listening, I always imagine the listeners, right? Like they're in the car it, on the way home from a casino is how I picture it. Um, but it's like, wow, if she can, maybe I can, you know, it's very inspirational. And, and that kind of comparison, I think would be, you know, good. Like, okay, she had the fortitude and it's not something you were ever looking for. It doesn't sound like the, like, 
having, it's great that you had a mom that showed you strength Mm -hmm. in that way. Um, I don't know that it's hereditary, right? Like, so I know that you did that work on your own. I think it's definitely learned behavior, but it comes to the point too, is just like what, like what you said, the comparison. Um, and comparison has always kind of affected me in my life, whether I was comparing my life to somebody else's or comparing, you know, like how hard I had it versus how, how easy somebody else has it. Like that can be good or bad. But for me, it was just like, I knew I needed to own and acknowledge the things that did happen to me, not only happened to me that I experienced, but I also needed to own and acknowledge the behaviors that I developed because of these experiences. Like I was not a good person. Um, for a long time to, to people I loved. And, you know, it was the lying, the manipulating, doing whatever I could to, to get the money to go gamble. And, you know, these are, these are all things that I still will reflect back on in my journaling. And, and, and it's still just, you know, we say we don't let shame carry us, you know, carry with us for forever. And it does get easier, but still, I still have moments, you know, two, almost two and a half months in, and I still have moments where uh, it, it it can kind of stop me in my tracks, you know, and just be like, I can't believe I did that. But what keeps me going is that my family is so supportive. Um, my my twin sister, who I feel like I affected the most uh, by my gambling, and that's because, you know, she loaned me money that I wouldn't pay back. Um, she co-signed on a car for me that I actually got repoed. Um, yeah, like some really, and these are things that I don't really elaborate on and I probably will elaborate more on some of the stuff as it continues to go on, but still some of it, I'm still healing, you know, like you said, I'm, I'm early in recovery and still, my perspective is still like figuring it all out, but, um, she still every month on my last bet date sends me a text and tells me that she's proud of me and she's you know, she checks up on me. She has my bank account information. So she like logs in and, and she'll let me know she's checking. Cause she'll complain about like my Starbucks, you know, how much I spend at Starbucks. Cause she's just not a person that spends money at Starbucks. So <laughs> it's just kind of, it's just kind of nice to know that she's proud of me. And it, it's honestly what keeps me going for the most part is because she is proud of me. And that's kind of how I gauge my own recovery. How is she feeling? How, how does she feel like I'm doing? And, um, it feels good to know that after two, two plus years that I am earning my trust, their trust back and, you know, that they want to be around me because I'm not being this asshole, you know, and it's nice. Thank you. You, you shared some great stuff there too. Um, we're taught in GA to hand over the finances and you're doing the work. Um, the have earning back the trust, huge, huge thing. Um, you only do that by your actions, not your words. Exactly. Exactly. Um, that's a, yeah, that's a huge point, but it also doesn't happen on our timetable. Oh, I feel good. I'm six months away from a bet. So you should trust me and everything is roses now. You know, in your case, it took 15 years. In my case, probably closer to 30 to break the trust, to do the damage. It doesn't come back overnight. Um, and I'm just calling that out because you because you mentioned those points. Would she lend me money? Probably not, <laughs> you know, but she's, you know, she knows that if she asks me to be somewhere, I'll be there because I'm not, you know, I'm committed to, to, 
things now. You know, it was like before I wouldn't commit to things because it's like I could have the opportunity to gamble. You never know. And now it's just like if she she knows that if she needs me, I'll be there. And she knows that I will someday make things whole with her. And um, she knows that there's a chance of that now. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where that means so much to me to kind of get that. Those are pieces of me that I lost. I was not that person before gambling or before my relationships that, you know, fed into all that too. It's like, I was not that person before. I don't want to say a hundred percent, not that person. Cause I think we all are capable of things, but, um, I, I was not a person that, that would hurt others as a way to, to feed an addiction. And, um, it just feels really good now that I think the people in my life know that and, and they're seeing it. Yeah. They're seeing the work I'm doing. That's great stuff. You, you said one other thing, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity and we're probably close to wrapping up, but you said, I'm still healing and I'm still learning and I'm still reflecting. Um, I almost think that if we ever lose that gift, then we're probably going back to the bet or, or, or doing the thing, right? Um, at least that's the lens I put on. Um, so I just, I hope you continue to like give yourself grace and compassion. Um, I love, like, I, I really, the, the time part isn't as important to me as what I love is when I'm going through something now, it's like, oh, okay. I can't wait to see what I think about this three months from now. Or I think I know it all now. Like, I say that loosely, know it all now, but then it, a few months goes by. Oh, oh, I see that. But I thought I knew that. And and it's almost becomes a game after a while, or at least that's kind of how I made it. It's like, okay, what am I learning? Um, and, and I used to ask myself too, like, where do the non-addicts get the information to learn this stuff? You know, right. <laughs> it's like, how, okay. did, how did they figure this out? Like, why did we have to go through what we went through to understand this? Um, I think for me, definitely, it's definitely like, okay, are you, did you ever watch Ted Lasso? No, but it, that's very eerie because that's what, um, just showed up. Like we just finished something else on iTunes or Apple TV or whatever. And I said, oh, mom, that one looked funny too. We just did that before I came up here. So, oh, it's really, really good. And it's a very, it's a, it's, there's a lot of mental health, um, talking that and, and things like that. But I remember what he said in one of these episodes, he said um, that when people stop being curious, like that's where the judgment shows up. And I can't remember the exact wording. I'll have to look up the quote, but people that are judgmental stop being curious. You know, they're not curious about the side, the side of the person. They're not curious. Like they get stuck in like, this is how it needs to be. This is the principle of it. And to me, that's, that's the worst kind of mentality to have for a person in recovery. It's when you stop being curious and you stop trying to understand what happened, uh, stop trying to understand how you can be a better person or do better tomorrow. And, um, so I think for me, if I stopped being curious, uh, and I stopped exploring like how I'm hurting, why am I hurting? Um, yeah, I definitely, no doubt will end back up into either gambling or some other way to cope. And, 
uh, I, this is not something I want for my life. And I hear people talk a lot like, well, I just miss gambling. And I'm like, well, I don't miss it. Um, and for somebody that really doesn't miss it, I spend a lot of time talking about it. Um, <laughs> I really don't, I don't miss it. I don't miss it. You know, every once in a while, my, my family, they'll go and do gamble nights or something. And it's like, I, I miss being able to spend time with them and laugh and have some fun, but I don't miss how broken I was. And I don't miss the feeling of that. And every time I talk to somebody who's, who's day one or can't quite get to day one, and I feel their emotion and it brings me right back there. And I'm like, I don't want to be there again. I don't want to be that person again. I don't want to lose those texts from my sister. Like happy anniversary is what she says. And I don't want to lose that trust with my mom, you know, who's in her seventies. And it's just like all these different things. I just don't want to lose and I'll lose it. If I stop being curious about what's next for me, for sure. Okay, you just made one more point I have to just kind of embellish on. A lot of people think that giving up gambling is the loss, but that's not what you just said. You just said giving up your recovery is the loss and that quality of life and what you're doing. It it was just a really great high note for, um, for us to come to a close on, but thank you so much. I, I, I feel like maybe we went a little out of the comfort zone. Um, and I appreciate you doing that. Um, you're very gracious. Um, give a, give a shout out to the group, how people can find you, please. Um, that would be amazing. Yeah. Um, the broke girl society podcast, you can find anywhere you find your podcasts. Um, and the broke girl society, Facebook group, uh, of course you can find us on Facebook and it is a private group. So you'll have to um, have a Facebook profile and, you know, I, the safety of the group is really important to me. So, um, please answer those questions and, you know, make sure that you have good intentions and, you know, we do meetings, we have, uh, a Sunday meeting and a Monday night meeting. So, um, we, they're usually topic-based or check-in based. Um, it's not a 12 step style meeting or anything like that. You just come in, we just talk about the topic and then we have, we're also, we also have a step meeting. So, um, and I hope, I hope one day I can maybe transition into doing this more full-time and be able to offer more meetings and offer more support. Um, but currently that is not, not where I'm at as far as work-wise, but I hope one day to get there. You will, you will. It, you're, you're doing the right things and the right things will happen and it'll go exactly how it's supposed to go. So you're already speaking at a national conference. Come on. Yeah, I'm, I'm a celebrity here. So um, it's exciting stuff. So everybody check out Miss Christina, uh, check out her show and, and join the group if you feel called to do so. Um, I'm sure you're going to meet some wonderful ladies in there just based on who you attract. So thanks. Lot, so- lots of support, honestly, lots of reading the posts every day are really helpful. I mean, it's, it's, there's so like when I first started, I thought, oh, well, at least, you know, we'll have a few women in here and we can kind of just talk about the triggers and the struggles and those types of things. And now, like I said, we're kind of, we're over 1200 for sure. Um, and the way that these women show up for each other and we do, I do want to clarify, we do have maybe 10 guys in the BGS and it's because they just, they're very loving and they just connect better with female energy and 
who am I, you know? So just, I just want to clarify that, but the meetings are women specific and, um, it's just, it's so supportive the way that these women show up for everybody in there. It's, it's really something I'm truly, truly grateful and proud for. Love it. Well, thank you for joining us, Christina. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much.